Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 381. Today is Sunday, the 12th of July, 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview, which was recorded in that period before lockdown, is with Mike Ballerman. Mike is host of the London FinTech podcast and author of the new book, The Rail Politic of the Unlisted Company Board. In this podcast with Mike, we discuss the importance of the Board of Governors to help drive change and be an engine of growth for companies, especially those that are unlisted. You'll hear about the different ways to constitute a board, how it is different between small and big companies, publicly traded and unlisted, a completely strategic conversation. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please consider to drop in your rating and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Mike Ballerman, great to have you back on the show. Crazy times we've been living in. Uh, last time that we recorded the podcast together on my show, it was back in 2015. I was just checking it out. And we were talking a lot about your podcast, London FinTech Podcast, which has had a mighty good run. It's now been downloaded over 500,000 times in 191 countries, which surely is a lot more than mine. My congratulations for that. More importantly, and the reason why I wanted to get you on the show was that you've just released a new book called The Real Politic of the Unlisted Company Board, Making Your Board an Engine of Growth. How interesting. What was the inspiration for writing this book, Mike? Well, if I just tell you the short story, because it'll put it into context, but I'm, I'm amazed that it was five years ago that we were last on the podcast together. We were young men then. We're, we're, not, we're not so young now. We're much, we're much, much older. Um, and much not, wiser, hopefully. Uh, yes, a little, little wiser in my case and much wiser in, in your case. And um, I think the genesis of the, of the book is um, very interesting insofar as uh, actually, if you understand the genesis, you'll understand a lot about what the book really is uh, in a way that I won't be able to fit into sort of, you know, 20, 30 minutes of conversation. Three years ago, almost, um, uh, I was at a conference uh, talking to a bunch of buddies. And I was thinking that really, I should grow up myself talking about getting older, uh, and and go a little plural, like my chums who'd stayed in the old incumbent FS had, uh, and sit on a few boards. And I spoke to a bunch of folks at the largest fintech conference uh, going who I know, and they all had the same reaction, which is that as I have, in FS terms, done a wide variety of different things. People FS, know me to, FS meaning financial services. Financial services in, in the city. Um, done a wide variety of things. People know me from different ways. So some people might say, oh, yeah, you're a strategy guy, or you're a new media guy, or you're a bond guy, or, you know, whatever. Um, that's fine. I get that all the time. I was used to that. But actually, after a sort of uh, a few conversations, it occurred to me that something was really very interesting here, which is it wasn't just me they saw in different ways. It was the board. And I suddenly thought, hang on, they all seem to implicitly have a different concept of what the board is there for in a small company. That's a little strange. So when I went, when I went home uh, off the conference, I pinged uh, 12 of the sort of uh, founders I respect most in London of very significant businesses. And I've sent them a sort of uh, a one-liner saying, uh, you know, uh, 
had a, had these few conversations. Uh, you guys all seem to have a slightly different opinion of the board. You know, fancy having a chat about your board and, and what you think it's there for and, and what's worked badly and what's wasn't. Um, and I promptly forgot about that email, to be honest, because you know what it's like in the digital age. We all get lots of emails. And you don't expect to get it back. If I'd emailed these 12 founders saying, hey, hey, Minter, I owe you 50 quid. I'm sorry about that. How can I give it back to you? They would have all come back to me, but they would have taken weeks. The bizarre thing was they all came back to me in a day. That's strange. That's really strange. So I spoke to them over the next couple of days, and I got a huge outpouring of emotion. I got a huge variety of understandings of what was there. I thought, wow, that's strange. So I pinged another 12 people. The same thing happened again. It took two days this time for them to come back to me. I had the same conversations. Um, and, uh, and that was so fascinating that I thought, well, I should actually investigate this. And also, the, the, the motivation for me was that I'd heard so much personal pain. If you go to LinkedIn or something like that, you get stories about how difficult it is or how exciting it is to found businesses. But the real politic of what really happens is a lot of personal pain, is waking up in a cold sweat at four o'clock in the morning, looking across at your partner and thinking, oh, how do I tell them it's all a disaster? We're going to have to sell the house and you know sell the children into slavery. So that was the motivation that set it off. And um, by the end of the, the whole project, I'd spoken to 80 founders, non-executive directors, chairmen, uh, board members of, of big companies and got a very sort of three-dimensional um, picture. And so the book is really a map, an insider's map of what it is really like on a small co-board just to round this off. Um, the archetypal quote in the book, which I quote in the blurb on the back, is I asked a founder, very well known, um, his name would be known on the front page of the FT, what his board meetings are like. He said, word for word, my board meetings are shit. That's what he told me. All the quotes are anonymous in the book, so that's what I mean by real politic. You know, mm. That's what life is like. I don't know whether you've noticed, Minter, but life doesn't always work out right. Sometimes life is incredibly painful. So that's what, that's what the real politic is. That's brilliant. And for having had experiences on non-listed and listed boards, I I can definitely see how absolutely broad the idea, the definition, the style of governance, the style of running meetings, the egos that are at play, the different interests that come into the board, and how that completely changes the dynamics in in the boards. So you, you focused on unlisted company boards. Give us uh, in in why you did that, and secondly, what would be some of those the, the major conclusions you came out uh, of this with all of these different and there must have been fascinating interviews that you had with these under the cover conversations. So the use of the word unlisted board um, is slightly technical but very relevant to the 21st century, which is that if you are a listed board, the government in the UK uh, has issued some two dozen or so corporate governance reports, thou shalt do the following. So you're given a massive statist dot to dot. Your role is almost to be a state auditor on the boards. The, the government prescribes in tiny detail what you, if you're a member of a listed company board, have to do, otherwise you will go to jail. If you're on an unlisted board, it's not so bad, although they're starting to encroach. So that's the reason, which is that the unlisted board is pretty much like the board has been from the 19th century when the company law company was invented, 
by which I mean in the UK, you go to company's house online, you pay you £10, you've got a company. That was invented in the 19th century. So that's why we use unlisted. Um, in the book, I tend to use the phrase small co, small company boards. When in, in your book, you, you'd go to good length to explain how there have been different the history of creating boards. And I was wondering, what what would you decide or decree would be the, the thing that changed, the force that changes the way boards operate the most over time? So one of the reasons this project took so long is that um, I'm very good at having foolish ideas. And, and sadly, I, I, I actually listened to some of them. So six years ago, I woke up in the night and thought, oh, there isn't a podcast on fintech. And I decided to do it. And, and with it, this was thought, not oh. a, it was not a foolish idea, Mike. <laughs> you say that. You're not the guy who has to do it. Uh, and the same with the, same with the, the board uh, book, which is I had this idea um, to do it. Now, one of the silly ideas I had along the project was I'd gathered all this in, input. I'd, I'd written the, the, the map. And I thought, well, actually... In terms of people not understanding what the board is there for today, nobody has spoken to me about what it was there for yesterday. Surely we can't really understand the board today unless we understand it yesterday. Because if we understand yesterday and today, then maybe we've got half an idea of tomorrow. So that was, a, okay, it wasn't such a bad thought, but it, it was a painful thought for the following reason, in that my concept was, oh, I'll add a chapter, I'll read two or three, four books over the next couple of weeks, and I'll just su summarise you know, what it's all about. It's extraordinarily enough, there is no book on the history of the company. There's a very slim volume by some economist chaps, uh, a very good read, but you'll read it waiting for an aeroplane kind of stuff. And, and they say that themselves. Bizarrely, given all the money spent on universities, given all the money spent on business schools, um, very little is known about the history of the company. So one reason this took so long is that I've got a second project um, on my desktop at the moment, on my computer, of uh, 100,000 words on the history of the company. Hmm. In this in this book, um, I do actually give one chapter on the history of the governments of the company. So it's a, it's a vast topic. To summarise it very briefly um, and to simplify, but only a little bit, the company as we know it today was a concept that originated in the UK in the 16th century <clears throat> for the following reason, which is that um, guilds societies were the way that everything was managed around Europe, how business was managed, how town management was managed, um, how uh, crafts uh, were, were managed. Um, by the middle of the 16th century, we stopped being so scared of the French and Portuguese who had divided the whole world up between themselves in terms of trade. The Pope had decreed that everything west of the edge of western edge of Brazil was Spanish territory. And the Pope had decreed that everything east of that was Portuguese territory. Free trade in the 16th century was this radical idea that other countries other than Spain and Portugal be able to get involved. So the English and the Dutch thought, oh, we like that, uh, being Protestant countries, and they got involved. Now, the thing about guilds is they were complex things, don't have time to go into it. But basically, it was a bunch of people who had their own PNL. It was a bunch of plumbers, shall we say, in a craft guild, or it was a bunch of merchants in the, in the, in the merchant guild. They had their own PNL. But if you wanted to go and trade with Asia, which is the big deal, the spice trade drove all this. If you go into, into your supermarket tomorrow and see spices, they're for pennies. But this, this drove the creation of the company. You needed a lot of money. You needed more money than one person could do. So it was how do you do business together? So that's why the company grew up in the 16th century was to do trade. It also did um, uh, uh, colonialism and colonizing other countries as well and built bridges and infrastructure. But really, it grew up. The, the 16th century company, very briefly, was the most democratic thing we've ever seen in this country. 
all the owners had a vote. And at the beginning, every owner, regardless of the shareholding, had one vote. In the East India Company, which wasn't the first, but is the one that survived the longest, even women had the vote centuries before they had it in, in the state. So it was incredibly democratic. Um, the problem with the, uh, the chartered company, as they were called, so the, the BBC, for example, is still a chartered company today. The Bank of England has a similar governance structure. It has a governor at the top, doesn't have a chief executive, was that you needed the state's permission. It took the East India Company one year to persuade Queen Elizabeth to let them form. So in the, in the early 19th century, again, cutting long story short, they said, OK, let's do a company law company. And so for five pounds, which is a lot of money back in the day, you didn't have to go and see the king or the queen or parliament and grovel to them and, and pay them a bunch of money. You paid your five pounds to company's house and you had your own company. Now, that is the type of company, the common law company that exists to this day. The mentality was very similar, though, which is that it was for the owners to decide. They can decide what they like. They can do what they like. That lasted for a very long time um, until the 70s and the collapse of Penn Central in America um, and until 1992 over here with Cadbury, at which point, very, very anomalously, um, the government started to explain and tell you how you should manage your board, which is a very strange thing, because if you have a private Christmas party, the government doesn't tell you how to do that. So it's an interesting question as to why they do. So in terms of answering the very big picture question here, the small company remains much more of the spirit of the past few centuries. Mm -hmm. The thing about a small company is you create it because you want to do something. You may not want to get trade spices with the Spice Islands, but you create it to do something. And it's all around creation and creativity. And that's one of the most important things that came out of this book. Hence, the subtitle is making your board an engine of growth. One of the problems is because everything you read in the press or in, in, in business literature is actually about big companies. Too many people small, form small companies with the idea that they need to do it properly, which is as they've read in the FT, as they've read in business books, which is, oh, you need a subcommittee for remuneration. You need a subcommittee for this. You, you set up a bureaucracy from the first day. No. If you bang two rocks together to create a little spark, to create your new idea, you need to put kindling on that. You need to blow on it gently. You need to get the fire going. So a small company is radically different from a big company today. And the distance is far, far greater than it has been for centuries. Brilliant. So I, I, want to, I do want to get into how to create that spark between those two rocks in a moment, Mike. But in the let's say, movement into the 21st century, because uh, essentially you talk a lot, you write a lot about the, the nature of how governance in the 21st century is different from the past. How would you characterize the change over the last 20 years, let's say, as we've moved from the 20th into the 21st? And I'm specifically thinking about how all these new digital tools has changed the way we govern. Uh, you know, let's say digital, broadly speaking, you know, new tech, internet, and so on? Well, as I'm sure you've covered many times from many angles in your podcast, Minta, digital has dramatically changed the nature of business. That's what I would say. Yeah. Dramatically changed business in terms of the governance of business. That has not been driven by digital at all, apart from on big co-listed boards, the non-executive directors now get PDFs and to create an audit trail to cover their own derrieres, they will mark up the PDFs so that in five years' time, 
when I came to your big co board, I could say, oh, look, here's the PDF. And at the time I wrote, I think Minter's crazy. I think this will be a disaster. So it, the digital has only changed the governance in the trivial fashion. How it's how why governance has changed a lot in the 21st century is the bureaucratization. And for this, um, it's very simple. Emperor Palpatine was right. Emperor Palpatine in Star Wars one said the bureaucrats have taken over. The bureaucrats have, have taken over. And so we're in this constant need to have uh, committees for committee's sake and and uh, long lists of paperwork. And, and and we've got to do things that are prescribed as opposed to what we need. Just so. And one of the interesting things in terms of the small company board, the predominant part of this book is content, um, not context. So there's a chapter, for example, on the board as a whole. There's a chapter on the CEO or the founder, there's a chapter on the chairman, there's a chapter on the NEDs, there's a chapter on the, the capital providers. There's a chapter on what happens as your small company grows and gets bigger and bigger and bigger uh, and becomes a, a, a big co. There's a, a, a section called When True, Two Tribes Go to War, uh, hat Hat tip to Frankie goes to Hollywood. And this is the pre-IPO board. The pre-IPO board is when two tribes go to war. One tribe is the small company, NED, founders. Non-executive directors. Yes. The other tribe is the listed NED. And um, I I conflate two stories into one for reasons of anonymity, two actual stories. Um, But the two stories were very similar in that they were told to me by two small companies, two unlisted companies who were looking at doing an IPO soon and therefore had gotten an IPO, the public offering when you when you list on the stock exchange, IPO ready board. And it was this, which is that something goes wrong, the shit hits the fan, it does, doesn't it? The tribe of big co-listed non-executive directors say, get some lawyers in, fire someone, blame someone, cover our derrieres. That's, that's their reaction. Process, 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 protect their own interests. The small co-founders who have been there from the beginning, who banged the rocks together and made the first spark and blown on it, have the antithetical approach, which is, look, we have got here today because things have always gone wrong. We're like a toddler learning to walk. We fall over countless times. But every time we pick ourselves up, we learn the lesson, we make sure that lesson doesn't change, doesn't happen again by changing the company and changing our processes and, and that, and we don't fire anyone. Now, in the short term, the small co, the creative, the, the, the board as a creative force, can win the battle, but they will lose the war because ultimately when it's a big co, it's all about process. If you're on a FTSE 100, if you're on one of the boards of the biggest com- companies in this country, your concern is not about getting a fire to grow, but it's stopping explosions. And if there is an explosion and you're at a select committee making sure that you, Minter, have a nice audit trail to show that you said all along, oh, I think there's going to be an explosion. I think there's going to be an explosion. So one thing we're getting on big companies, and I really we should focus on the small companies, but one thing we're getting on big companies is that they are setting up advisory boards to do the corporate creativity piece because the corporate creativity has got squeezed out of listed company boards by corporate control. So the reason why I asked my prior question, Mike, was about how, for example, the Constitution of Boards now has potentially somebody who might be a chief digital officer uh, or at least digitally sav- digital savviness. Where is that? Where is the expertise of digital on the board? The second one is is my experience, which is how, thanks to technology, not everyone needs to come to meet and smoke cigars. 
which parenthetically means that we can include a, a broader, more diverse group of people on the board. Because if let's say you're based in a city and you have a quarterly, weekly, monthly, whatever, semi-annual board meeting, the with us all being cats and our big agendas, it's always a li little simpler to have just people in my neighborhood who come over. So let's say broader London. But if you have teleconference abilities now, it's easy to have someone in Hong Kong type dial in and in Visio be part of it. So I, I feel that the digital component has also brought with it greater diversity or potential for diversity in a board, which I feel is one of the biggest elements if you're in terms of how to create that spark in a board. Your reaction, Mike? My reaction is that they are very good questions. Um, I need to take a step back, not having forgotten your question. I've written it down. Um, in, in the small company, you are simply trying to grow stuff. Whoever is on the board, let's say we start a company tomorrow. Whoever's on our board, we won't have a board tomorrow. We'll, we'll worry about it a little bit down the road, generally when we raise some outside capital. Because the people who give us loads of their money want someone making sure that you and I aren't spending it all on sweeties Indeed. or new microphones for our podcast. <laughs> um, so at that point, you have to have a, 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 a proper board. So we will have on the board whoever. So if we're in a business where digital is really important, maybe the digital guy is, is on it right at the beginning. You know, for the businesses I do in fintech, they're very highly tech. So you can't have a successful fintech without having a, a CTO, a CDO, or what do you want to call them, the, the guy who knows all about the computers there who's really good so the chances are we'll have him on the board and we'll, we'll meet once a month and, and talk about the big picture stuff so for small companies you have on the board whoever can help you grow your business your business is going to be very different from mine it's very different from his it's very different from hers so that's the great thing about small companies you have the freedom to do whatever you think is best yes people put their heart and soul into the, these businesses they will have penguins on the board if it turns out the penguins help now, when it comes to the big co-boards, um, because of this bureaucratization, as I mentioned before, there has been a split between what I call the two main forces of the board, corporate creativity and corporate control. They're sometimes called performance. How do we make performance better? And conformance. Are we following all the rules? Now, particularly in America, um, where they've got their own things with Sarbanes-Oxley, but the same process is really happening around the world under different names. Many boards in America of big co's are super majority boards where the only executive on the board is the chief executive. And you have a bunch of these so-called independent non-executive directors. So in terms of is the CDO there? Probably not, because in many cases, there's only the chief executive. So you've got a bunch of folks who actually don't know very much about the company, and that's all about conformance. To answer the, the, the performance piece about diversity, and I think sectoral diversity is a very important one. I think you know, if I had a, a growing company and a successful company, I would want people from completely different industries mm -hmm. because I should know about mine. I should know what's going Down on. Down straight, mine. especially yeah, for a non-executive director, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> where we're seeing what you're talking about, which is creativity, completely different opinions. Oh, I want someone from China. China's really important. I must get somebody who understands that. I want to understand Brazil. I want to understand the marketing business, whatever. That is generally in Bigco on the advisory boards. Where I've spoken to Bigco's that have got them, they do absolutely what you say. 
and the, and they say to me, the board I really enjoy, Mike, is the advisory board because every three months this guy comes from Silicon Valley, this guy flies in from Singapore, and wow, is it fun? And it takes me back to when I founded the company because we're all talking about these fascinating ideas and how we could do things differently. That that performance, that corporate creativity has gone sideways on the listed company board. It's very much the heart of a small company board. All right, so now let's get into the, see the nuts and bolts, Mike, of getting that growth that a board can be an engine of, of which a board can be an engine. Um, you've, you and I are, have started up a company. We've got a reasonable amount of revenues and in the small co area in fintech, let's say a million or two. I don't know how you characterize that, but how would you go about then constituting a board uh, in in advance of having investments? Do you say you don't need one? Uh, we we just continue operating. When do we start needing one? Do we do we have to wait until the investment people come in? And how are you going to go about? identifying what sort of board, what sort of governance, and who are the people? So, uh, very good questions, all of which would take us some time to answer if we had, had a couple. Well, we can send them to read the book, of course, Mike. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I've got a book I can, I can sell you. Um, so, firstly, let's just dif- dis- differentiate between legally um, and substantially. For my podcast, because of the way the world works, I am a company, Penalty's Risk Limited. It has a board meeting. Yeah. <clears throat> the accountant sent me the paper. It decides on dividends and, and I sign it. So the answer is as soon as you have formed a company, legally you have to have a board. But is it a substantive thing? Well, the answer is, is, is no. You don't have external people um, coming in. <clears throat> That's to the extent, Mike, that you don't have arguments with yourself. Yes, yes. Well, I, I, I differ with what I say every, every day, actually. Um, but that doesn't happen at the board because the operating part of my company is me anyway. Of course. So there isn't a need for the, for the higher um, level. Now, when we start the board, it differs in different countries. In the US, for example, they tend to leave boards much later, but they do have more advisors. So it amounts to the same process happening in a different structural way. If we're forming a board and it's a substantive one, well, generally what triggers it is, as I say, as you mentioned, the external capital, um, but we could also do it beforehand. And there's a very simple point here, Minter, which is why should we have a board even if they weren't exist, didn't exist and weren't legally necessary and people just gave us the money and said, look, we trust you guys. Don't, don't worry about it. You're not going to spend it on microphones and pot plants uh, or busts of the chairman in, in reception. <clears throat> um, and it's the following thing, which is that there are people, Minter, and this is very hard to believe, but I, I guarantee you it's true, who know far more than you or I, who've got far more contacts than you or I, who have built even bigger and greater businesses. Those people, curiously, are not going to work for us full time for a small amount of money, not in a million years. But because of this thing called a board, amazingly enough, these people who have done what we want to do several times over, they will turn up in our offices once a month, once a quarter or whatever, for a relatively small sum of money. And if we choose the right people, they will come in they will fill in whatever gaps in our skill sets and armories that we have, and they will try their best to help us grow the board and to mentor us. So when you say, bring, yes, we saw we saw that problem ten years ago. This is how we approached it. All right, you want to get this uh, uber well-achieved uh, individual on your board. How do you uh, make it from, let's say, a governance standpoint and a an alignment standpoint uh, a success? 
And by alignment, you mean? Well, so if I'm bringing you on the board, uh, you know, in the end of the day, I'm doing this because it's a lifestyle company. Uh, oh, really? Well, that means, what does that mean? Well, it means I want to run it until I die. And the the other big willer who's achieved monstrous listings, uh, IPOs, says, well, no, no. Well, the only thing I like to do is uh, turn around companies and sell them in three years. So there's a misalignment at that point as to what we're trying to achieve. And and I see a lot of that, for example, even between co-founders, much less when you bring on big cheeses that have other experiences, bigger context knowledge. Absolutely. Well, the first trivial case is that I've been talking about small companies. But to be more precise, I should say small companies that have got the motivation to become medium-sized companies, at least, that are really on the journey to grow, will need quite a lot of capital to get there, and will need some serious governing management above them. If it is my company for the podcast, I'm not going to seduce one of these people ever, because they'll say, what do you do? Why well, do the podcast? Because it actually is quite interesting, really. And I get a little bit of sponsorship. It's quite nice. It's quite fun. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're not, we're not going to get them. So the first thing is that you're only going to attract people of a certain caliber if they are interested in your journey. Yep. If you want to become the world's number one uh, house of podcasts on many matters, if you want to become a media channel, then hmm, that might interest somebody. Now, one of the mistakes that small companies make is they think, oh, well, we're going to pay them. And you know, they think that pay is quite a lot. Uh, in the UK, it's something like £25,000 per annum, maybe a quarter percent of the equity. They think, gosh, that's a lot of money to pay. And if you're a small, impoverished, small co it is, because you're going to end up spending about £100,000 per annum, <clears throat> which if it's coming out your own pocket, is a lot of money. However, we must remember that these super successful people, ideally, we're after who have been on our journey already and success, been successful at it. I want to help us. They don't worry about 25 grand. It's, you know, a round of round of drinks for them. So the, the question really resolves at the end of the day to are we on a path with a vision which is going to attract other people? Once we're on that path, what kind of people will it attract? And then simply, and you're a, a marketing genius, so you will know this bit as well as, a, as recruiting, how do we seduce them? Absolutely. I love that. So create the story first of all, your own story, make that journey apparent, and then, of course, craft it in a way that appeals to Titan A or B and so that they uh, can, can contribute, uh, let's say, more energetically, not just financially, into your whole journey. Yeah, you've got a vision and a mission. I, I do it tomorrow and say, Minta, look, this is what I'm trying to do. This is how I'm trying to change the world. I think the world can be, in a small way, a better place if we do this. I think it's really fun, really exciting. You've done a lot of this before. I would be over the moon if you come with me. Now, the other thing that, especially when it comes to chairman, is a very important person, but also in general, is that it is a seduction. And speaking to people, to get the right people, it takes months. It may take a couple of years of keeping in touch because you're sure, Mike, it sounds interesting. I tell you what, let's have a coffee in three months. See you're getting on, you know, and then over time, you've got more credibility than I'm not just producing hot air. Words are cheap. You, you, you see that not only can I produce hot air and words, but I can produce implementation. So I'm, I'm hearing in what you say, Mike, uh, one of the great insights of what you just said would be if I'm a small company, want to attract a big bohona uh, like this. Well, find a way that. Uh, you're making the world a better place that fits in with their narrative and and that for me leads to this notion of purpose and so rather than just making money flipping a co company 
finding purpose. And I'm wondering how the CEO letter that was distributed last year by 181 CEOs saying that we need to pay attention to all stakeholders, no longer just the shareholder, essentially. Obviously, this was signed by publicly traded big CEOs. To what extent this notion of purpose and other stakeholders is relevant in the small co world in which you're writing? And this obviously speaks to this notion of governance. Well, I would say you're quite good at asking very challenging questions, but I think you've had practice. <laughs> and it makes a change for me to be on the guest side rather than sort of ro- rolling the smoke bomb across the table and seeing what the person, person <clears throat> does with it. There is a, a lot in there, and it relates to centuries of the company. Let me just try and answer it by sketching one or two things. At the beginning of the company, the company wasn't what we see it as today, it was a section of society in a guild. You know, guilds had their own saints, they had their own processions, they had their own festivals. Uh, the East India Company had a poor house for retired sailors. It had its own breweries. It was a, it was a chunk of society. We were also talking for centuries, um, and certainly 50s, 60s, still in this country and in, in America, um, about uh, people who were religious. People who, whether they're right or wrong, believed that once life was over, they would be going somewhere better or somewhere worse. And what they did in this life would contribute. That was a very, very different world um, mentality. In that world, the question would have kind of been redundant insofar as, of course, there was a purpose to make people's lives better. Now, I simplify because the railroad barons and this kind of stuff in the 19th century, there have always been people who have been greedy and trying to make a few bucks in sort of snake oil salesman, yada, yada, yada. But the general drift was like that. More recently, more recently, and this is a fascinating and, and complex topic we don't really have time to dive into, but more recently, let's just again caricature it unfairly, with the 1980s, we had sort of quotes, Reagan Thatcher idea, quotes neoliberalism, which is the purpose of the company is to make money. That's all. The market sorts everything else out. Now, with that um, idea, um, it produced a lot of liberation. So telecoms improved enormously with that idea because people went off and found, oh, how can we make, make money? But it also produced a terrible, terrible side effect, which is that you can make money by selling junk food, which makes people obese. And diabetes is through the roof, a terrible, terrible illness. Um, the media makes most money by selling fear, by scaring everybody so they come back tomorrow. Banks make most money by bankrupting companies left, right and, and center. Drug companies make money by not releasing all the data on SSRI antidepressant trials because it makes more money. So $100 billion of which. Exactly. So the problem for the megacos around the world um, has been that it's an artificial thing to take profit and make that your god. Every religion in the world warns against just doing that because you may make lots of money, you may make lots of profit, but in the meantime, you've polluted the rivers, you've polluted the oceans and, and caused destruction. The reaction against that has been what you might call stakeholderism, which is a co- kind of go back to, I mean, I'm thinking of Native American tribes before the Europeans arrived. Um, there were many of them that considered every decision they made in the light of the impact on the next six generations. They've gone back to that and said, hang on, let's consider everything. And there's something called Section 172 in the UK, the 2006 Companies Act, uh, which talks about that. But unsurprisingly, once you put that into bureaucratic 
legalese, it makes a farce of it because you're sitting on a board and you say, oh, OK, so we're looking at buying some new photocopiers. So have we considered the impact on the, the, on the homeless in, in London on that? Have we considered the impact on all the countries? How, you know, you can't actually consider everybody in every decision because the, the way you get through business is focusing on the, the essential. So there's this two way pull at the moment of making money and everything will sort itself out, which clearly it isn't. But the opposite, which is consider everybody all the time, which you can't do. And there's a push me, pull me tug. And you mentioned the big co's that are driving this thing. One of the things that has happened is that big companies, rather bizarrely, have become very, very woke, very virtue signally. Because it's almost like a spray on kind of morality and ethics for a predominantly post-religious society, especially when you're talking about global companies that transcend many, many cultures. So, Mike, that was really fun. I enjoyed this conversation a lot. Where can someone get your book, get in touch with you, find about your podcast, which uh, has done so well as well, and um, get in touch with you, Mike. So thank you very much for being on the show, too. So thank you for that, Minta, and thank you for asking. Um, the podcast is londonfintechpodcast.com. The book is called The Real Politic. That's with a K of the Enlisted Company Board. Or you can just go to Amazon and type in Mike Balliman. That's B-A-L-I-M-A-N. And I think the final message I'd like to... Uh, leave is that although we've spoken about the big picture here, that's the context. The real purpose of this book is for people on small company boards or people that want to create their own business is to look at a map before you enter the territory. Back to the original question, my main motivation in doing this was the pain that people had suffered by wandering into a territory for which they didn't have the map. Now you can have the map before you want to go into the territory and hopefully create a business with purpose that will make the world a better place. Wonderful, Mike. How a fitting conclusion can you get? Uh, that's as, as theatrically delivered as, as uh, you know how. Mike, brilliant. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Live for the challenge so life
The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.